0: Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. You can connect with us online at www.gosaintandrew.com. Today's scripture comes from 1 John, the first of three epistles by John, one of the last books added to the biblical canon. John addresses the new Christ followers who were surrounded by pagans and those who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. John writes of walking the walk of faith in action and in deed, admitting one's sins, and trusting in God's forgiveness, and lastly, in understanding the love of God and that that love can be seen through us. We pick up the reading in the fourth chapter of John, 1 John talking about spirits who aren't of God, and then he shifts into this beautiful love language. Hear the word of the Lord. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. May God add a blessing to the reading of this word. Amen. Let's sing
1: together, Teach Us Your Ways. Teach us your way. Teach us your way. Another, Learn to love each other Teach us your ways Teach us to weep Teach us to weep Let us weep with one another Learn to love each other Teach us to
0: weep.
1: We continue this morning in our sermon series, Life After God. The title itself is intended to be somewhat of a a play on words. Life After God, it's recognizing that there's a whole generation of people who today are living a post-God life, unable to reconcile all they've been taught and told to believe about God with their lived experiences, so it's easier, even safer, to live life without God, after God. But it also recognizes that even in that experience of trying to live life after God, there's always a part of us in pursuit of God, in pursuit of grace, in pursuit of divine love. And so, isn't that a descriptor of our experience sometimes, that we as much as we try to run from God, we are also always somehow strangely in pursuit of God, living life after God. Some time ago I was watching one of those TV shows where they roll home videos of people doing dumb things that should have killed them but didn't. <laughs> it's like America's Funniest Home Videos except for the laughing part, um, you know. If you enjoy watching people bungee jump from tall bridges only to discover halfway down that they forgot to tie the other end of the rope to the bridge, you're really going to love this show. I don't know why I was watching it, but in the episode I was watching, these uh, college-age girls, they board a small little boat on a river somewhere in Ohio, and they are enjoying this quiet, lazy day on the water when a violent storm suddenly rolls through unexpectedly. And in no time, the river swells and rushes. And when they finally decide to head for the dock, they discover the little motor on their little boat isn't strong enough to get them back upstream safely. And before they know it, they begin to drift downstream toward this 10 or 15 foot high dam. And the boat reaches the dam and quickly topples over it. But when the boat lands at the base of the dam, somehow surprisingly still upright. It gets stuck in the current of the waterfall, and the current will not release them, and immediately the boat begins to take on water. And this is when the narrator of the show says, of the five women in the boat, one of them cannot swim. And isn't that why we watch the show, right? (laughs) I mean, how's it going to turn out? The boat takes on so much water that it soon capsizes, it spills these five women into this raging river and the four swimmer types let go of the boat and they swim to the rescue boats that are waiting for them downstream. But the one non-swimmer stays and she clings to the side of the capsized boat and she goes under and she comes back up over and over again. She will drown if she does not let go of this useless boat. She's holding this sinking boat, trying to save herself. Her only chance of survival is to actually let go and give herself to the raging river. And the drama goes on and on. She disappears. She comes back up, goes under it again, just grasp, gasp for air, over and over until finally the moment of surrender comes. And she must trust that the rescuers downstream will save her. And at last she lets go. And is rescued in the waiting arms of the people below. Hold that image for a minute. One of the earliest symbols of the church was a small wooden boat. Some of you perhaps have been to churches. Maybe you grew up in church and there were a lot of stained glass windows. Maybe you remember oftentimes there were in stained glass windows and still are today imagery of small little boats. The or anchors, and the reason is because the church was always a symbol of, uh, the boat was always a symbol of the church, the body of Christ. In ancient times, the sea was understood as the last part of creation that God had not yet tamed. And the ancients believed that the sea, you know, was full of sea monsters, and they believed that the earth was flat, that you could just go off at any moment, and so to get into a, a creaky little boat took a lot of courage. And the symbol of the boat for early Christians was reminiscent of the stories of Jesus who gathered his disciples on the Sea of Galilee and there on the sea he taught them. He, uh, he walked on water. He calmed the storms. He was present with them to not fear. And so ever since the boat became the image of a, of a vessel of salvation. This is why the central portion of churches today are often architecturally referred to as the nave the nave it comes from the Latin uh, the Latin for ship is, uh, is, is uh, navus the, the Latin for boat is navicula the church or the community of faith was always understood and still today as something like a boat but for many people today that boat seems to be stuck in the raging current of modern life for many, it's taking on water. Maybe for others, it's even capsized. And even if it's still floating somehow, it's, for many, it's too small, it's fragile, it's too confining for them. There's not enough room in the boat for their questions and for their doubts. And they struggle to stay afloat in this boat. They struggle to believe if, that is, believing means They have to universally accept everything they've been taught and told about God, despite the fact that it, it doesn't always stack up to their real lived experiences. And so for many of them, they simply think it's just easier to let go, to leave the boat behind, and to live life without God. Have you ever been like that girl in the water, the one who was afraid to let go? Years ago, I came face to face with the the very real possibility that I could no longer believe. And a lot of people, maybe even you, have had serious doubts and questions about your faith. But in my case, it it came at the absolute wrong time, the hardest time. It was just before I was going to be ordained. (laughs) And my life up to then seemed to all be working towards some singular purpose of becoming an ordained minister. My old, my young adult life, I I worked toward a four-year undergrad degree in, of all things, religious studies, a three-year seminary degree that was fully funded by a generous scholarship. And so I had this obligation to the system. All these people that were counting on me, a newly married husband, a baby on the way, so much pressure. You might call it this major, major ball of God wax. The river of doubt, the questions, they raged all around me. And I came to realize that I, I, I couldn't stay in the boat anymore if, if I was going to maintain something vital to my soul and to my integrity and to my true self. And so I did the only thing I knew to do. I let go of the boat. I plunged headfirst into the river Of doubt and all of my questions and I chose to swim all the way to the bottom of that river and I discovered there how deep and scary and lonely and beautiful altogether it is and down there I held my breath for as long as I possibly could until I finally found enough courage to come back up with a more compelling reason to be a pastor and that singular reason, the calling that has shaped my ministry for 30 years, has been to build a more buoyant and bigger boat. A boat for people who struggle with their questions and their doubts, but who still believe that there might be a God out there, a God in the Bible, that they've never met. A God who is worthy of their belief. If that describes you, I, I want you to know there's plenty of room on this boat. There's plenty of room for your doubts and for your uncertainty, for your struggles. We've been talking about some of those struggles, and the one I want to lift up today is this inexplicable claim that God uh, is changeless, that God doesn't change. Have you ever wondered if God changes? It's a great question. It's a question of almost as old as time itself. Does God, like humans, like creation itself, ever experience a change of heart or mind? Change of plans? Maybe even a change of character? Or is God like what Aristotle described as the unmoved mover? The one who initially uh, starts is the primary cause of all creation in the universe, sets everything in motion, but ever since sits back idly, unmoved, uninvolved, unsympathetic to the circumstances of our lives? Or is God like what Rene Descartes and Isaac Newton both described themselves as deists? Is God like what they described, this uh, divine watchmaker, Uh, this cosmic intelligence who organizes and orders and designs the world with, with mechanical precision? according to certain physical or natural laws. But once designs it and and creates it, then steps back and watches time tick outside of time. Now, in an ever-changing world, the notion of an unchanging God is of great comfort. The world wavers, but God remains the same. And we can point to a handful of 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 Bible verses that support this idea. In the book of Malachi, it just says straight up, it says, I, the Lord, do not change. The letter of James says, Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And the letter to the Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. It's called the doctrine of immutability, and it's based on this notion that if God were to change, God would be imperfect, untrustworthy, unreliable. The changelessness of God is what makes God worthy of our reverence and worship. In fact, it's captured in one of our favorite hymns in this space. It's in our hymnals. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. And if you can get past all the thous and thys and these, you get the point. God is rock solid. And that's a source of great comfort for us because we want a reliable God. But it can also be an obstacle for those of us who want a relational God, a God who cares deeply about our lives. I mean, have you ever been in any meaningful relationship in your life with anyone for any amount of time in which the other person did not or refused to change? How'd that work out for you? Lori and I met when we were 16 years old. If at the time... Lori thought that by the time I was 53 that I would still be bleaching my hair blonde and playing Pac-Man and Space Invaders. And uh, if I was still stuck as a junior in high school 36 years later, I'm pretty sure the, the first date we had would have been the last date we ever had. Because to be alive and to relate to anything that is alive in this world with anything that feels like love requires genuine change. The effect of our love in any relationship is that it, it changes the lover and the one who receives the love. And so the question is, does God change or is God changeless? We, we, this last week, we conducted another survey. I want to share with you some of the results. We had about 300 respondents this week. And um, we asked the question, I believe God experiences or feels what we experience or feel. And 80% of you, that's four out of five, said God experiences what we feel. I believe God is affected by or influenced by what we experience or feel. 66% of you said somewhat agree or strongly agree. That's two out of three. I believe God responds lovingly to our needs and circumstances in real time. Somewhat agree or strongly agree. That was 74%, three out of four. I believe prayer can influence God or even change God's mind. Somewhat agree or strongly agree, 64%. Again, two out of three. I believe God's essential nature is changeless or immutable. 61% of you said, I agree or strongly agree. I believe God's essential nature is changeless, but God's relationship with creation is ever changing. 79% of you said, I agree somewhat or strongly. Four out of five. You see, the, the, the image that we have of God collectively is that God is changeless and changing all at once. If you've ever known of a distant, unmoving, caring God, if that's the only God you've ever known, there's a God in the Bible I want you to meet. A God who, who out of deep love, is constantly changing. Changing. There are more than 40 verses in the Scriptures, just in the Old Testament alone, that speak of a God that changes. This is a God who repents, regrets, responds, receives, returns, renews, rejoices, remembers. These are words taken right out of our Scripture. Re. These re words imply two unmistakable truths. Number one, that God is actually involved in and not standing outside of time. And number two, God is in some way affected by or influenced by creation as a result of standing in time. will give you an example of a story. You've heard of this individual in Hebrew scriptures called Abraham. Abraham is bargaining with God. God apparently wants to destroy a wicked city, but Abraham is worried that in that city there could be some righteous people who might perish undeservedly. And so Abraham pleads with God. He says, God, if there were 50 righteous in the city, would you spare the city? God thinks about it and says, find 50 righteous and I'll, I'll spare it for their sakes. God, what about 45? Would you go 45? Abraham says, God, I'll spare it for the 45. But Abraham won't stop. Would you go as low as 40? How about 30? Would you go as low as 20? God, what about 10? Would you spare the city? And Abraham wears God down. Eventually, I mean, he's like a little child, right? Finally, God relents. And I'm pretty sure this is the first time ever in the history of the world that the word sheesh was mentioned, right? (laughs) And it was God who said it, sheesh. The last line of the story says, and the Lord went his way. Ah, oh, This is not the unmoved mover, not the divine watchmaker God who sets everything in motion and then sits back with arms folded, objectively, indifferently observing the world. This is a God who experiences our need, our circumstances in real time and then acts and responds in ways that are that are true to God's nature. So a God who's changing and unchanging all at once. To understand this paradox, you have to distinguish between God's essence and God's experience. We all have them, and so do so does God. Consider your own life right now. You are a human. You have been a human all your life. I mean, I'm counting on the fact that you've been a human all your life. You. You have never been anything other than human, and for as long as you ever will live, you will always be human. And we have a lot riding on the fact that that's going to be true. This will never change. But your experience as a human has been constantly changing, moment by moment, day by day, year to year. You are not the same human that you were as an infant in that cute little onesie, or as the freshman in high school with that pink mohawk. Or even as you were yesterday when you rolled out of bed and first put your feet on the floor. Uh, That human is history. So is the human that you just were a moment ago thinking about that human. But your human essence never changes. Your human experience uh, is always changing. Your humanity is constant but your how you live humanly, is flexible. It's responding to your experience in the world and so it is with God. God's essence is unchanging. God's experience is always changing in response to you and to me, to all of us together, to creation. What is God's unchanging essence? The ancient Hebrews had this idea that you, you couldn't capture God's essence in a word. Or in and even in the image, they, they came up with a tetragrammaton, as they call it, and it's Y H W H. You've seen this four vowels, four vowels, Yad He Vah He. That's how they often pronounce it. But some people said you can't even pronounce it; it's too much mystery and holiness. But there's more to these four vowels. The ancient rabbis believed there's just they just weren't vowels. They, They were breathing sounds. Yad, hey, vav, hey. This, they said, is God's essence. The sound of breathing. The breath itself. The sound of life shared, life poured out. This creative, responding, restoring, resurrecting life force that flows through you and me. Yad he, he The writer of first John calls this life force by another name. The passage we read just now, the, the word John uses is agape. We've heard that word, it almost is a cliche. Love. This life force that's poured out into the universe through God's breath is, is love. John says it clearly, God is agape. Agape love is the divine life force in the world that when it's breathed out, it seeks the highest good for those who receive it in. This life force sees potential, the highest potential for each of us in every one of us. And this, this life force is so committed to bringing out the best in us, to see us live out our highest selves that this life force will do anything anything to have its full effect in us. And that is why agape often is understood as the Jesus is the embodiment of agape, the embodiment of doing anything in the name of love. This is God's essential nature. It doesn't change. The book of Lamentations calls it steadfast love. It says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are Wait, they're new every morning. They never cease, but they're new. Every morning, steadfast love is God's essence. It never changes. But it's also new every day. In fact, it's not yesterday's love. It's not leftover love. It's love that's been created today. Why? Why? Because if God's love is to have its fullest effect in you, if it's to have its uh, fullest effect and help you reach your greatest, highest good, it means it must change. It must adapt. It will will keep changing and responding until it has reached its ultimate good for you. And this is God's experience. This is the part of God that changes according to the day, the hour, the very moment Of your existence. How does it all work together? Essence, experience. The best we can do is human analogy, the kind of the kind of love that we would describe as loving in our human relationships. For example, the love that we would share between a parent and a child. I'll give you a crude example. Both of my sons grew up playing baseball. I also grew up playing baseball, in fact I, I, I never grew out of it, I kept playing even till about 42 years old, I played in men's leagues, I played with men who knew the game better than me, played professionally, I, I learned a lot by just playing alongside them. And then when my boys said I want to play, I said, I've got some things I can teach you. I mean I hope that when they're five and I'm 42, I've got something to teach them. They had the curiosity to learn, I wanted the best for them and so. I taught them the game of baseball, how to play. And when they were young, both of them, I I used a batting tee. I threw some wiffle balls, did a little soft toss with them to try to teach them to hit. I went easy on them. But as they grew older, my tactics had to change, right? I, I genuinely wanted the highest good for them. And I knew that soft toss and batting tees would only get them so far. They need more. So we moved on. We did fastballs and curveballs, change-ups. Sometimes, I'll admit, I even threw some brushback pitches just to keep them honest. <laughs> you get the point. And I did this because I loved my sons. I wanted the best for them. Did my love change? No. It was, I always wanted the best for them. I always acted in ways that would bring that talent to its fullest effect that love was steadfast, but in another sense, my love changed. When they were five, the most loving thing I could do for them was not to throw them a, a four-seam fastball or a knuckle curve. But when they were 15, it was. And the fact that I love my sons uh, and still do is unchanging, but how I love them and how I still love them is changing all the time based on what's best for them in that moment. Our human analogies fail us, but... It's something like that with God's love. It's nothing like the God that many of us struggle to comprehend. The unmoved mover who we are told loves us, but from an insurmountable distance. Do you remember the final episode of the hit TV show, Seinfeld? Remember how it ended? Jerry, Elaine, George, Kramer, also self-absorbed in their lives about nothing, and they're standing on a street corner casually watching this sad stranger get carjacked at a stoplight, and what do they do? Nothing. They just stand there and they watch. They're arrested. They're brought before the judge. All these parade, parade of witnesses from their past come through and testify against them. The jury convicts them. Do you remember what they were convicted of? Criminal Indifference. And why was the episode so funny? Perhaps it's because it, it laughs uncomfortably at one of our greatest fears in life. That no one cares. Or worse, they're watching, but, but they don't care to get involved. They don't care to respond. There's a story about a man named Lazarus. You've heard of him. He's a friend of Jesus. He's sick. Jesus tries to get there in time to save him, but when he arrives it's too late. Lazarus is dead. Jesus loves him. He feels lost deeply and he weeps. And two of the most important words in all the Gospels are right here. Jesus wept. A divine love that feels what we feel. But then Jesus utters what I think are the The other three most important words in the Gospels. Lazarus, come out. A divine love that responds, calling us out, calling us to reach our fullest, highest good. Takeaways for today. There's a God in the Bible that many of us have never met And this God's steadfast love never changes or ceases. But this God's mercies are new every morning.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. And if you'd like more information, go to www.gosaintandrew.com. See you next week.